Welcome to RV Out West. I'm your host, Brooks. My family of four's base camp is located in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, and our RV adventures radiate from there. I'm relatively new to RVing, and a few years ago, I convinced my wife that for an anniversary present, we should buy a used tent trailer from some friends of ours. Ever since then, we have fallen head over heels for the RV life, and we now find ourselves towing a 26-foot Jayco travel trailer. So grab yourself a mug of coffee and join us as we discuss RVing around the West. From sweet camping spots, gear and equipment, to tips and tricks, we've got you covered. We are RV Out West. We are going to be talking about wilderness first aid. This is an important and often overlooked topic as I think people think of wilderness first aid as something necessary for those who are deep in the backcountry or high up on a mountain and far away from medical care. In reality, wilderness first aid is really about situations where you find yourself one plus hour away from receiving medical attention from a medical professional. Think about that. One hour is not that long. You could be one natural disaster away in an urban environment. I think it's important for anyone who loves to recreate to get wilderness first aid training. Joining me today is Sean Quinn, a former National Outdoor Leadership School Knowles instructor who taught rafting in Colorado and Utah and then spent his winters sailing down in Mexico, and he did this for about seven years. He then was drawn to continuing his wilderness medicine training, and he proceeded to teach wilderness medicine techniques and tactics as a Knowles instructor. Sean started teaching wilderness first aid classes for three years. Ultimately, he got his wilderness EMT so he could teach the 10-day wilderness first responder courses. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sean. I'm excited to chat with you, and I would like to jump right into the conversation by asking, what is wilderness first aid? It's always sexy to talk about the talk about the, the you know the big head wounds and bones sticking out and um, and 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 those are those are like important to know how to take care of. Um, but the reality and for a wilderness first aid class, I mean wilderness first aid is uh, we did it as a two two day two and a half day if if you got CPR with it, right? So yeah, that was my two days. Your ability to to like go into that kind of depth depth is pretty limited, um, and uh, which is why for for wilderness uh, for for the National Outdoor Leadership School they require all their leaders have a wilderness first responder. That's a that's a ten day certification, so a longer certification, uh, more scenarios. It's it's scenario based education basically uh, for with with um, Wilderness Medicine Institute. It's like it's half and half classroom essentially half and half classroom and and scenario based education which is awesome i mean it's a great it's a great way to learn to get really good hands on uh practice they do a, a, like moulage fake stage makeup for all of their for all their wounds and stuff so you're you know you you palpate someone's abdomen and you you know you expose it at the skin level and you're like well there's a bruise there and uh and so then you're you know you're thinking not only like dealing with the patient and care, but like, what, what would I expect it to look like in the field um, and, uh, and be able to manage that? But, you know, for, for really the, the biggest decision, you know, for, so wilderness, for us, for wilderness medicine, like, you know, it's not, it's not roots and berries. It's not like how to make a poultice or anything out of, uh, out of tree bark or anything. It's, 
it's the same kind of stuff you would get in any kind of front country medicine class, um, just with the the twist of how would you how would you recognize whether or not you could keep this person in the field? So being able to uh, being able to assess the severity of it, um, and then if that person needs to come out, some basic decision making tools for um, stabilizing the patient in the field and then making evacuation decisions, how to, how, to get a, how to get an evacuation out for that person, whether that person needs to evacuate quickly or slowly and what that would, what would, that would look like for, for your situation of wherever you happen to be. I think the thing too, for me, when I took my wilderness first aid course, it's not about necessarily being in the back country. That could yeah. be, hey, we had a wicked earthquake and yeah. EMT services are overwhelmed with call incoming calls and they're trying to triage. That's kind of the wilderness if we think about it. I mean, one of the one of the most severe injuries that I that I dealt with was a uh, was a cooking injury. Um, a student was a student was cooking a pot of uh, cooking a pot of rice and was sitting next to it, and the pot of boiling hot rice landed in her lap. And so now you have second degree burns, partial thickness burns that are in your groin area and are covering a significant portion of your body. And um, it was it was right on the edge for her uh, as to as to going between it. Like it was it was a it was a, a decision whether or not we were going to evac her quickly or slowly. And, um, she, she thankfully had not, there was no actual burning on her genitals, but we had a, a female staff member that had checked to make sure that, that she didn't have any, any blistering. She just had, she probably had, um, uh, it was probably like 4%, 5%, some, somewhere in there. I can't remember. It's been a long time now, but it was a, it was a significant burn, um, and, but because it was a, it was a rafting course in Idaho, um, and because it was a rafting course, um, she didn't have to walk, she didn't have to hike, she didn't have to carry a pack. Um, we could just have her sit on the raft. She was really not looking for, it was a, it was a semester course. So the students were together for, for three months. And this was the last section of their semester. And, uh, you know, it was like the last two weeks and she did not want to get evacuated and miss the last two weeks of being together with this group of people for three months and just miss the last little bit. So we are like, look, we, you know, we, and we had a, we had a pretty good sized group. We had, I don't know, two or three, two or three large rafts and each of them had a big first aid kit. And then we had a smaller first aid kit with the, with um, uh, another, like each instructor had their own little, their own little personal first aid kit. And it, it was like, it was a conscious decision for us as a as a leadership team of, of like, hey, we can manage this one injury, but we can't manage anything else, right? If if anything else happens, like we're we're throwing all our all our eggs in this basket, anything else happens, like we're we're gonna have to pull the trigger, and and she's gonna have to go out, and whoever else gets injured is gonna have to go out because we just don't have supplies to manage all of those all of those injuries, um, if if something else happened. 
And, um, and it was a decision making, make decision call. We also had really good access for communication. That's a, that's another big key of like, what are your communication devices that you have available? We carried a satellite phone with us on all of our courses. So, you know, we can, we could call the office and like, we could arrange an evac and we could have someone out that night anytime. Like we could, we could have them out in, in a couple of hours. There were, it, it was on the, the snake, the Frank church river of no return wilderness area. So there's jet boats that are cruising up and down the river all the time. So it, it would, it would be relatively easy for us to get, um, get anybody out. What are some of the other most common occurrences of, of injuries or whatever that people might want to think about or prepare for? Yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of think about whatever my mode of travel is. So if I'm hiking, right. Um, blisters are going to be super common. If you're hiking, if you're, um, if you're kayaking, uh, CC kayaking, you're going to have, you know, blisters on your hands. Um, you're going to probably have sunburn issues that you're going to have to deal with a lot of that stuff, thinking about what your activity is, um, and setting up a, setting up your first, first aid kit heavy, um, for, for the activity that you're doing, um, to be able to have extra supplies for that specific task. Um, as far as like, you know, what lacerations, blisters, those are really common. Sunburns are really common. Um, you know, I didn't, we didn't have a, we didn't have a lot of like digestive issues, although uh, there have been cases where, I mean, you can, uh, hi camp hygiene is, is crucial uh, to avoiding having, um, having major intestinal problems, right? There are, there are things that live in our, lower intestinal system that our upper intestinal system really does not get along with. And um, the number one way to, to manage that is just to wash your hands um, when you're, when you're uh, going to the bathroom and wash your hands before you eat. Uh, and, you know, just, just regular soap, we would carry just a, like a, a two ounce Nalgene container of just regular dish soap and uh, a drop of that on your hands after you're after you're um, going to the bathroom is like that's yeah. all you really need. You know, you know, right. it's just it's just making sure that you're the you don't accept a lower standard of cleanliness in the field to what you would accept at your house, right? Um, and that you know, a lot of people often, certainly when they're starting out camping, they're like, oh, I'm going to go camping and I'm going to get dirty and uh, and I, and I just like, yeah, you can be dirty, but you don't have to be dirty. Right. 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 <laughs> um, right. And a, a lot of it is thinking about, um, you know, front loading, depending on your, your group size and group experience level, um, reminding people like this is not being in the front country anymore, right? The, the decisions that we make have more severe consequences. And I actually, at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I was talking with some friends of mine. I was like, hey, this is a lot like being in a wilderness situation because our entire hospital system is now shutting down. So if you get in a car accident, like there might not be an ICU available for you if you were to get in a car accident or a motorcycle accident or a rock climbing accident, even if you're in the front country, cause you're, you know, you're sleeping in your bed at your house that night. Um, but just because of the nature of what was happening with our medical system, like it was not dissimilar from being in a wilderness environment. It, and that, yeah, exactly. And that goes back to that point I was talking about earlier. Absolutely. That 
that wilderness first aid does not necessarily mean you're miles from the road. You're just potentially away from getting the help that you might need. And so having training and knowledge to help you make those decisions. And you're right. It really was about decision-making it. It wasn't necessarily, here's how you band-aid this cut or you do this. It's about, you know, here's soap notes. How do you take good soap notes and get those notes off? So if, and when you need to turn that patient over to a proper medical doctor or EMT or paramedic, you can kind of be like, Hey, here's the background of what I've done to help them not have to repeat necessarily where, you know, so they can move that carefully. Yeah. And and they get a, they get a snapshot. If you, a well done soap soap note, if you're, if you're getting that, it, it, to a certain degree, it extends the, the level of qualified care that they're being able to, they're able to monitor, right? If you're getting a good set of vital signs for an hour before, you know, before a helicopter comes in or before you're transferring to EMS, uh, that really, that can really tell them like, okay, this is where their care is. The, the power of the, the power of vital signs and the power of a soap note is change over time. And so if they get that timestamp further back in, in history before they're actually hands-on for the patient, um, it, it, tells them, it tells them those trends further than what they can do just, just when they get there. You know, people always like to talk a little bit about gear, but uh, what I'm curious about is, and I finally built out what I think is for me and my skill set and my knowledge base, a pretty good first aid kit that I finally, it's not just a glorified boo-boo kit that I bought at REI that came with some extra stuff. You, you know, what I, what I think about with, with equipment that I'm carrying. And, and that's one of the things that you get out of taking a class where you're doing a scenario-based class is that you can try things out um, and you can try them again and again and practice. And you get a, you can get a good sense of what are the things that you can improvise, right? Cause the things that you can improvise, you don't necessarily need to worry about um, packing in a first aid kit. Sl- Sam's plants are great, but you know, you're, you're making a decision on how much weight you want to carry and if I've got a, you know, if I got a, a therm arrest and uh, or or a ridge light and uh, sleeping pad, and I can I can improvise a splint out of that, well, I'm gonna I'm probably gonna not take my Sam splint on that. It's a it's a great one for like the car camping or RVing where I'm I'm not as worried about weight. Um, but I'd I'd rather take that Sam splint out on a backpacking trip and say, hey, you know, what are the things that I can't improvise? Right, I can't improvise gloves. I can't improvise a mask. Uh, I can't improvise antibiotic ointments. I can't improvise swill. I can't readily improvise sterile gauze. I can I can boil stuff and and uh, you know make things sterile, but that that takes some time. Um, but like those are the those are the things that are that are challenging to improvise. I can't improvise aspirin. I can't improvise uh, you know a, a, an inhaler or epinephrine for someone that has allergic reactions. Um, that would be the other thing is like, if you're particularly, if you're leading a group or if you're going out with people that you're not super familiar with is, uh, just taking a few minutes before you go 
and um, and check in if anybody's got any kind of medical history that would potentially be good to know about, right? Um, you know, does anybody have any any allergies to bee stings? Anybody have a history of asthma? Anybody have diabetes? Um, and then asking them like, okay, well, that's great. Good information. What do you do to care for that? And do you have that stuff with you? Right. And yeah, exactly. Because it's it's great to have a have an EpiPen in the in the closet at home, but it's not going to help us out uh, as we're going up to the top of Mount Rainier, right? Um, and uh, so so thinking about thinking about those things, and you know, it, it happens, right? It, it happens that uh, that people don't bring their medication, and and uh, I mean, I. I know, I know of a, I know of a case of of uh, somebody that didn't didn't bring medication on a on a camping trip, and um, needed it, and um, and that's didn't, a tough didn't spot make to it. Be in. Yeah, that's super a tough. Spot. Yeah, super that tough. sucks. And um, it's it's super super sad, and uh, so it, it's it's worth taking the time. Uh, taking the time to check in and you know for Knowles like as a Knowles instructor we would get all that information right our students had to fill out all that paperwork so depending on the, the group that you're going with if it's a formal group it's probably already all set up the trick is when it gets to be like a casual group and you know a couple friends meeting up and and going out like uh um but it but it's still important to do um even even in those settings right and uh because it because it is casual and um you don't think to cross to, the eyes you're not going to get overlook them. it yeah they're not going to fill out that medical form for you or any of those kind of things either yeah i mean i was like i was just mountain biking with a buddy of mine oh, a month ago or so and he's he's allergic to bees and he biked we were biked right into a bee and uh, it stung him right on the lip and thankfully we were we were like mm, 10 minutes from his house and we were on our way out of the trail and going yep. back to his house anyway but it was just like that yeah he won't do the, that again he'll, he'll yeah, be prepared no, for he, that yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. i you know i knew he was allergic and uh he knew he was allergic and we'd already talked about it but nobody had we didn't have we didn't have any antihistamines we didn't have anything and uh it's just it was we were it was good it was good timing <laughs> yeah that's good that's one of those lucky situations that's good what can you share with me about Knowles as an institution? Like how long have they been around since we're talking about first aid? Kind of what are the different degrees and the levels of wilderness medicine from the Knowles institution? Uh, yeah, so Knowles was started in 1965 by Paul Petzl. Um, he, he had been a 10th Mountain Division guy and um, he, saw, he saw an opportunity um, as uh, as Outward Bound was trying to set up in the United States, there were just not a lot of people that were qualified to lead Outward Bound trips. And so the the folks that were setting up there were like, hey, Paul, why don't you start a leadership school to teach people how to be Outward Bound instructors? And so he he went and uh, and set up Knowles. Started as a mountaineering school. I think they, they it was the first year or second year they got a, uh, I think it was, it was like life. They did a 30, 30 days to survival. They did a, a, a video of, I'm sure you can, I'm sure you can look it up and find it. It's called 30 days to survival. I, I can't remember the, the group that was doing it, but, and, the, and after that, 
you know, that got national, that got national attention. And so the next year they were, they were chock-a-block full. Uh, they, they got more students interested than, than they had space to do it. And so it started out with 30 day classes of, of hiking mountaineering. Um, it's still predominantly a hiking and mountaineering. The primary focus of the course as a leadership school is to teach leadership. And so tell me about the wilderness medicine courses, kind of what's like the intro to wilderness medicine up to, you know, whatever, being a backcountry doctor kind of thing, you know? Nothing. Yeah. So the, the intro is the, the wilderness first aid. And that's a, that's a good, like, have a, have a sense of what's going on, you know, be able to be able to do some, some moderate care, uh, have a, have a sense that, that, Worst things can happen, um, and maybe just a little, te- a little bit of a teaser with some of those things. And and really, the the hope is to probably get you to, if you're going to be doing serious wilderness stuff, um, would be to think about taking the next level up, which would be the the wilderness first responder. So wilderness first aid is two days um, with CPR is two and a half days. The wilderness first responder is kind of the gold standard for if if someone wants to lead backcountry expedition. Um, that's the that's the gold standard for for doing those. Those are ten days long, and then um, those also teaches a uh, a wilderness EMT class, which is basically a, a front country EMT. So you get your you take the national registry EMT test at the end, plus a wilderness first responder. So um, and it, and if someone already has an EMT and they take the wilderness first responder class, they can combine those two and get a, a wilderness EMT. They do have some classes that are specifically for medical professionals. They can get uh, continuing ed units and get a wilderness a wilderness focus on that. Um, and some of those are they have front country classes where you you just go to the class. They also have backcountry classes where you can go uh, you know go sail for a week and get your continuing ed units um, for your for your nursing certification and get the and get the um, the wilderness the wilderness aspect of, of medical care. So um, those are, those are pretty fun classes too. For somebody who might be listening to this show and either this is maybe the first time they've heard about a wilderness first aid or a Wilfa class, um, or maybe it's something they've been thinking about maybe doing, give me a really good why. A good why. A why. Why should they do it? Because you, you like to go, you like to go, hiking, camping, recreating, you know that things can go wrong and people can get injured and you wanna be able to help them if that happens. And you want something a little bit more than just like a a Red Cross first aid class where they're gonna teach you to put a Band-Aid on. You wanna have a little bit bigger picture of, of the circumstances that you are more likely to be in as someone that likes to recreate in the outdoors. I'll share with you, but the pivotal point for me for doing the Wilfa is that we had just joined our Cub Scout pack, but Cub Scouts hadn't started yet. And they were like, it was August. And like, hey, we're going to go do a hike. It's open to anybody in the pack. Let's just go do like a, you know, team building, not even a team building, but just let's, let's just go as a, a pack and go on a hike and be together. Yeah. We were new to the pack. We're like, yeah, totally. Let's go. And it was out here in Snohomish at a trail right here in Snohomish. And it was a very popular high trafficked trail. Um, 
my son was with a buddy who he hadn't seen all summer. So they were being six-year-old boys at the time and just goofing <laughs> off and running around and being wild and shorts and whatever. And my son fell and ripped open his knee on an exposed tree root like a, that was in the trail. And he, he was crying and bawling and we kind of took one look and I was like, yeah, this is going to need some stitches. Like this is not just a slap a bandaid on it, throw some Neosporin and call it a day. Yeah. We are maybe 10 minutes from the car. We had just barely started the hike. We've gone around like two corners. We were not far from the car. Um, so we didn't tell him he was going to need stitches, but we were like, peace out. My wife is kind of piggybacking him out of the woods and evacuating him like you piggyback. I've got our daughter who's two at the time. We're in, I've got her maybe in the little baby Bjorn or what a little backpack yeah. carrier, whatever. And then I'm holding guy got the dog and i'm bringing the dog with me so i'm kind of managing the two-year-old daughter and the dog and my wife's like backpack carrying or you know piggyback carrying our son out and we went immediately to the local clinic and yeah they were like yeah he needs stitches we're like yeah we figured as much i need to get some additional training on my own for for this um good good for you good thinking yeah i mean again i was 10 minutes from the car and that was the catalyst for me to be like hey yeah, what it doesn't do? take it doesn't take much, right? Nope. It doesn't take much. Yeah. And it's you know, it's one thing to go uh go cliff jumping when you're with your friends at the lake, but uh, you know, you hike in a mile and cliff jumping at the lake can be uh can be a, a serious problem if somebody lands wrong or steps on a piece of broken glass or steps on a rock and now you have to figure out how to carry someone out that, you know that hour hiking is now going to be like four or five hours trying to get somebody out. Yeah. And then knowing that, Hey, even if you do and either have cell service and are lucky enough to make your nine one one call or use your personal locator beacon or whatever, that doesn't mean like EMTs are dropping everything and they're on their way. You're still yeah, going to no, be in the back country no. probably for the night until help arrives the next day. So and depending I, on how know, far would, and where you are. I would say it's actually probably one of the one of the problems of uh of the ease of communication these days is that people just take it for granted that they can call out whenever and get someone there and they don't think about the fact that, you know, when you make that phone call, you're asking someone to put their life on the line, right? And you know, that that nurse is risking not being able to come home to her kids or that EMT might that's flying in in that helicopter might not be able to see his family tonight. Uh, if something goes wrong to, to take care of you. So just cause you have access to communication doesn't mean that it's, that it's without risk. Is there anything just kind of, as we start to wrap up in closing, is there anything that um, maybe we didn't talk about that you feel like we should talk about, or you want to, comma and anything yeah you know medications are kind of like are kind of a tricky legal thing um you know so just thinking about what you have available uh you know over the counter stuff you're pretty you're pretty okay for the most part but um you know ideally making sure that people are people are carrying that stuff because once you know once again that's not something you can 
you can just whip up in the backcountry, right? Well, then, totally off topic. What's your favorite national park? Oh, favorite national park. I would, I think I'd have to say Yellowstone. It, you know, the like the geysers are just like the volcanic action that's going on in that place is just absolutely incredible. And then you throw on top of that, that there's animals that can eat you. And uh, it, it's just like, it's, it's just kind of raw, right? It's just raw and, and meaty. And uh, just that that whole that whole Teton Valley is is pretty incredible. I was hanging out in in Jackson one day, and I I just like stopped. I was I was heading to Lander to go work a course, probably I don't I don't even know anymore. But I was heading to Lander, going to Knowles, and um, stopped in, and I'm like hanging out, eating my lunch, and I walk around the corner and like going down by this lake, going down by this river, and uh, I'm like, oh. That's a big buffalo right over there. I'm just going to like back out and give you your forest and, <laughs> and um, try not to try not to get gored by a buffalo. <laughs> so, that's yeah, that, awesome. That's, that's, that's super cool though. Sean, thank you so much for talking to us about uh, wilderness first aid. I appreciate it. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah, man. Time for a pit stop. And in this pit stop, I'd like to discuss what fuels me to go and see what's beyond the horizon. I'd like to be able to wax poetically about it all, but I think one of the great American authors, John Steinbeck, has actually summed it up the best. And quite frankly, I just can't compete. If you have ever read or never read Travels with Charlie by Steinbeck, the introduction to this book grips me. And for once, I feel like it got me. I've read so many road novels, and when I read Steinbeck's book, he puts into words what I was never able to express verbally. Wanderlust is real. It's a magnetic force that I can't control that pulls me in, and it's like a drug. I just can't explain it. I'll let Steinbeck do the work of really explaining it. This is an excerpt from Travels with Charlie. When I was very young, and the urge to be someplace else was on me, I was assured by mature people that maturity would cure this itch. When years described me as mature, the remedy prescribed was middle age. In middle age, I was assured that greater age would calm my fever, and now that I am 58, perhaps salinity will do the job. Nothing has worked. Four hoarse blasts of a ship's whistle still raise the hair on my neck and set my feet to tapping. The sound of a jet an engine warming up, even the clopping of shod hooves on pavement brings on the ancient shudder, the dry mouth and vacant eye, the hot palms and the churn of stomach high up under the rib cage. In other words, I don't improve. In further words, once a bum, always a bum. I fear this disease is incurable. I set this matter down not to instruct others, but to inform myself. When the virus of restlessness begins to take possession of a wayward man and the road away from here seems broad and straight and sweet, the victim must first find in himself a good and sufficient reason for going. This, to the practical bum, is not difficult. He has a built-in garden of reasons to choose from. Next, he must plan his trip in time and space, choose a direction and a destination, and last, he must implement the journey. How to go, what to take, how long to stay. This part of the process is invariable and immortal. 
I set it down so that newcomers to bumdom, like teenagers in new-hatched sin, will not think that they invented it. Once a journey is designed, equipped, and put into process, a new factor enters and takes over. A trip, a safari, an exploration is an entity differently from all journeys. It has personality, temperament, individuality, uniqueness. A journey is a person in itself, and no two are alike. And all plans, safeguards, policing, and coercion are fruitless. We find after years of struggle that we do not take a trip. A trip takes us. Tour masters, schedules, reservation, brass-bound and inevitable, dash themselves to the wreckage on the personality of the trip. Only when this is recognized can the blow-in-the-glass bum relax and go along with it. Only then do the frustrations fall away. In this, a journey is like marriage. The certain way to be wrong is to think you control it. I feel better now having said this, although only those who have experienced it will understand. I blame my parents for this incurable personality trait. As a child in my elementary days, my parents would share slideshows with us. While I realize I'm dating myself on this, it is a formidable memory of my childhood. My parents spent their honeymoon traveling through Europe. My grandfather, Papa, was a petroleum engineer and he moved his family all over the world as his work required. So my mom has lived all over the world, from London, England, Lima, Peru, Cairo, Egypt, Bogota, Colombia. She's experienced it as a child, a tween, and a teenager. These stories of afar I grew up with. I'm not sure if these stories are fully responsible, but at 46 years of age, they still have left an impression on me. In the 80s, my family spent every summer driving up and down the I-5 corridor between Washington State and Newport Beach, California. My grandparents, Bobby and Papa, had a beach home on Newport Bay. These drives were pre-iPhones, pre-Walkmans, at least in the beginning, and to spend three 10-hour days in the car meant reading books, playing car games, looking out the window as the world passed us by and as the miles waned into the distance. It always meant a potty and a fuel stop in Weed, California. As I started to learn to drive, I learned to do the bulk of my freeway driving in the San Andreas Desert. It's an ugly, flat stretch of I-5 along the desert spine of California. I remember one time when I was 15, I had my learner's permit, and in our house, whoever was the driver was also in control of the car stereo. I should add that my mom was a school teacher, and so we spent the summers down there while my dad worked, and then he would fly down and join us for his two weeks vacation. So in this instance, my mom had been playing Pavarotti's opera music, and finally, she was too tired to carry on, and I was finally able to take the wheel. She climbed into the passenger seat, I tossed Social Distortion's self-titled album into the cassette player, and joined back up with the freeway. As the tape was about to flip back to the A-side after listening to the whole album, my mom woke up from her nap. The needle on the speedometer in our 1980s Toyota Vanagon was pegged and bouncing at 85 miles an hour. I wasn't paying attention, and I was doing my best to stay with the flow of traffic. I, of course, was still getting passed like we were doing 45 miles an hour on the freeway. And once my mom saw the needle, she reminded me of the speed limit and advised that I slowed down, which I obliged, but for the B-side of that Social Distortion album, it was blissful. Me 
the music, and the open road. I will never forget that. I think this time in the car over this decade laid a foundation for a deep love of the open road. Over my years, I've driven coast to coast six times, backpacked through Europe, sailed the Greek islands, and took a tent and a sleeping bag to Costa Rica with zero plans and no reservations. I agree with Steinbeck, and I feel that this is incurable. There is a metronome inside of me that takes a steady beat, and while sometimes I can numb it, I also cannot ignore it. Road atlases and paper maps are something that I can stare at and get lost in as my mind wanders to these locations, calculating distance and times. I want to see for myself these routes and crisscross North America, and I'm driven, if you will, to make it happen. I set my spirit free while I'm living on the road. For those of you listening, you may understand or perhaps think this is all nonsense. Either way, this is why at the end of every podcast episode, I encourage all of you to go see what's beyond the horizon. The horizon is whatever you make it to be figuratively or literally. And I want you all to know that you can go, you can see, and you can make it happen. You just got to get out there and make it a priority. Wishing you all safe travels. In two weeks, we are going to be talking with Uncle Mark about the summertime spirit of gin. He and I will be discussing its origins, what makes a great martini, and Uncle Mark shares a great gin drink recipe that is perfect for the campground. In the meantime, please be sure to share with your friends and family about this podcast and head over to Apple Podcasts and leave this show a rating and a review. If you've not yet subscribed to the show, please do so so you never miss an episode. Now get out there, explore, and go see what's beyond the horizon. Thanks so much for listening to RV Out West. Join us again in two weeks with our next episode. Please like and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you choose to get your podcast so you never miss an episode. And I sure would appreciate if you left a rating or a review of the show. Special thanks to Scott Holmes Music for providing the intro song, We Are One. RV Out West can be found on Instagram and Facebook where you can interact with us and follow along on our RV adventures around the Pacific Northwest. So get out there, explore, and go see what's beyond the horizon.